0: Right, hello everyone! It's Libba and Glenn here today. What's up, Glenn? I'm hanging out! You know, at least we get to hang out in a nice, sheltered, air-conditioned, wonderful museum.
1: Running hot and cold water. (laughs) Yes. Comfy chairs. Uh, Yes.
0: Abundant food.
1: I was upstairs just a second ago. Not a single grizzly bear in sight. No grizzly? Not even a rattlesnake? Not a rattlesnake. Mm. Not even a gopher.
0: Wow! Wait, there
1: is the gopher. But he's not much of a oh,
0: yeah, he's Oh, he's, yeah, he's fine. We've, we've made peace with him. We yes. gave him a, a few uh, trinkets and <laughs> medallions. He was, he was really excited. Okay, what are we talking about today? Uh, well, if you couldn't already guess, <laughs> we're actually talking about a, a pretty new fascination of mine, and that is the Lewis and Clark Expedition, or the Corps of Discovery. And I was first introduced to this. I mean, I'm sure I learned about Lewis and Clark in school, but if you ask me five years ago, I probably would just be like, oh, "They went out and had a. An they're adventure. on the two dollar bill. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't even know that. <laughs> yeah, no, wait, not, no, they're, they're not. not. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's Jefferson, right? Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, I hadn't retained a whole lot. Uh, if I did learn anything, and all I knew was, uh, you know, adventurers, explorers. That was the idea, and I had I, I had heard of Sacagawea before, but didn't really know anything about her life story. And it wasn't until we started doing webcasts here uh, for schools about Lewis and Clark, where the kids actually got to meet Lewis and Clark, quote unquote. And I have become a little obsessed with it. Yes. Like,
1: <laughs> this is the great thing about Libba, folks, is that she she is uh, she comes here, she helps us produce these things, and she accidentally stumbles into desperately wants to be a historian. Whoops.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I get to reap the benefits because I just get to to listen in and learn, and then, you know, I get to dive into the research of of what I want to, and that's, I mean, you're right. That's basically everything we cover. <laughs> so yeah. there's, there's really nothing that isn't interesting, but for some reason, this has really captured my attention so much so that I have listened to at least the audiobook version of the Lewis and Clark journals that are like, Eighteen hours worth of content. This is my third time going through it, and I still, see? and I still have so much that there's to unpack and everything. So I want to just nerd out today about Lewis and Clark. And as usual, we can only incite your curiosity today. It's, or... it's
1: a two and a half, it's a two and a half year trip. We have thirty minutes. Yeah, may, yeah, yeah right. Maybe we'll see about that. Yeah. <laughs>
0: But, Glenn, I mean, when did you become interested in Lewis and Clark? When was it introduced to you? Was it pretty young?
1: Or I mean, you know, it, we're all supposed to get this in yeah. school, uh, usually in those uh, later elementary and early middle school. And and we talked about it. And, you know, being a, a history nerd, I thought Lewis and Clark were cool. Yeah. But they weren't military history, so I didn't dive into them as much as I did some other aspects of history until yeah. I was in actually getting my bachelor's degree. And that's about the time that Stephen Ambrose's Undaunted Courage came out, uh, which, of course, was also around the Bicentennial.
0: Okay, so this is a book specifically about the core of discovery? Yeah. Okay, yeah. well, I, that's my next read because I've I've just been reading the or listening to the, to, the to primary the, source. To the know? raw stuff, yes. Yeah. Yes. Which, which this book does, the audiobook does give really great context, though, so there, there is that. But, okay, right. so you started, this is like undergrad for you. It's
1: leading up to, so, yeah. you know, like a like a good marketing scheme, the book comes <laughs> out before the Bicentennial actually yeah, happens. Yeah, yeah, right, right. So there's lots of stuff that happens around that Bicentennial, and Stephen Ambrose's book is the bestseller because he's, he's a great writer. Mm-hmm. He's a very much a, an academic historian who writes for a popular audience, and so this book sort of took the country by storm. I jumped on that bandwagon and it was really interesting it was really interesting but then i kind of got that book did some other reading and then left it behind until kind of like you come here to the history center and we start providing these digital programs and one day i think we got a an email from a teacher that said uh can you all do lewis and clark
0: <laughs> and, as and usually, we looked we're at like... each other and we're like Sure! Yeah! Give, yeah. Us, give us two weeks to... Yeah, give it, give, yeah. Us, give us a little
1: more. So we, we put that together. We put our outfits together and start doing some research. And then we start portraying Lewis and Clark.
0: Yeah, and it's so... I think that's such a, a two really fun characters for kids. Because I think a kid can grasp the concept of like, alright, we're going to go on an adventure... There's dangers out there. There's challenges and obstacles. I mean, it's almost stuff that sounds like a video game or mm-hmm. something or a very dramatic action-packed series. And so there's a lot of excitement. There's so many uh, tools and equipment and weapons and, and tribes that they're meeting out there, animals they're discovering, scientific observations. And just
1: making their way across the landscape. Yeah. Right? I mean, that, that's part of what fascinates me in, in, in some of this is just the challenges they face moving.
0: And just the fact that they survived at all. I mean, people thought they were dead for a while. (laughs) Although, apparently Jefferson had, still had hopes, you know, two years. (laughs) And, and yeah, I'm sure he was, he really wanted to have some high hopes because he was super, super excited about this and really looking forward to all the things that they were going and samples and everything they were going to bring back, but... Let's back up a little bit and just talk about the context of this. So, Jefferson gets a whole bunch of land. Yeah, that's
1: the the simple version of it. The (laughs) Louisiana Purchase.
0: So, the Louisiana Purchase, which was like $30 million for. No, it was $15 million.
1: $15 million. million Of of, of back then dollars.
0: Right. Okay, okay. $15 million. Do you know off the top of your head for how many acres of land? It is
1: several million th- acres. Of, That's what I like, was
0: wondering. Is it like, is it, the, for some reason, 30 sticks in my mind? I, I, that, it may it be close million? to 30 million
1: acres <laughs> wow. and, and something like, I can't remember how many square miles, hundreds of thousands of square miles of land. Yeah. And the, the Western boundary of which was kind of up in the air. Basically, when, oh, when right. the, when the yeah. negotiators were talking to Napoleon about, well, where does this end? Napoleon said, well, I'm sure you'll make the best of it. <laughs> Don't worry about it. <laughs> You're American. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> when you reach the big waters, <laughs> the big ocean. So, with the Louisiana Purchase, we where where is the basic like modern day boundary? Because I know they start out in St.
1: Louis. Right. So, so after the Revolution, with the Treaty of Paris, uh, when we gain our independence, yeah. the United States is everything from the Atlantic Ocean to the Mississippi River. So that's the first. That's that's the first United States. Yeah. And then, with this Louisiana purchase, it literally doubles the size of the landmass that the new nation has.
0: That was previously at least occupied by Spain and France? It was claimed by Spain initially,
1: and then France got it during the Napoleonic Wars. France sold it to the United States to raise money to fight the British. That's a whole other story.
0: But basically this land was still very much populated by Native American tribes spread uh, out. The
1: only Spanish and French peoples were really down near uh, New Orleans and a- around the rivers and coastal lands around the Gulf. That was it. it yeah, was so still nobody's like, like
0: hanging out, being French no. and Spanish. It's a, a <laughs>
1: quote-unquote wilderness. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now they—so Jefferson's got— this vast amount of land doubling the size of the United States and now he needs someone to go and map it out and establish peaceful relationships with the native tribes that are out there now what was there any american contact between those tribes before lewis and clark
1: official no. Mm-hmm. Of course, there had been, you know, traders right. going out and things like that, but there had been no, especially the further west you go, of course, there was no official American diplomatic yeah. relationship whatsoever.
0: So, this is the first time initiating yeah. that. That's a lot of pressure.
1: That's the thing. <laughs> for with, two men, well, you know. Well, the, that's the beauty. That's the one of the fascinating things about the Corps of Discovery is they're geographers, map makers, diplomats, scientists, navigators. Translators, Translators, hunters, they're all, they're they're all these things, all these things. And it's so fascinating. Like you say that the two men and, and you know, they did take about 30 other people. Right, right. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. So they get this core of discovery, which I love the, I love the name core of discovery. So there's thirty to forty ish men depending on the upon crew. when you're
1: talking about during right. the expedition. Because yeah.
0: sometimes like earlier on in the expedition, they had some guys like guide them to where they, <laughs> as far as they would go. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we talk about the two main guys and sort of their background more specifically, give some context, and then we can go into Sacagawea and sort of the other members of the crew because there's some interesting personalities and backgrounds and and let's we'll start with Meriwether Lewis. Okay. So, Meriwether Lewis, as far as I understand, he grew up in Virginia and Georgia, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So he spent a ton of his childhood just wandering about the woods and being a boy in the woods of of
1: Georgia and Virginia. But still getting a good education, a a formal education.
0: Yeah. So he's formally educated and he eventually goes into the military. Mm -hmm. Do you know much about his experience in the military? What was that like? He...
1: He went into the military, spent some time in there, uh, and then basically, that was a not so much a formative part of, of his, but it did teach him discipline, it did teach him leadership, and how to guide other men in certain situations. How to take command, basically.
0: And he was under the command of William Clark at one point. His He was a superior of him. That's
1: Clark initially joins as an enlisted man, and then does eventually get a commission as an officer. Mm-hmm. And Clark, uh, I think, serves with the American the American Legion, uh, the Legion of the United States, mm-hmm. excuse me, and fights at fallen timbers and things like that. So Clark actually has a little more hardy military experience, both at the enlisted level and the officer level. Lewis doesn't quite have that, but they're both ex-military men. But after that, Lewis goes into sort of, quasi-politics and statesmanship eventually becomes thomas jefferson's personal secretary at the white house
0: yeah big deal yeah yeah and and i think it's also important to note that lewis and clark did have a friendship during their military time together they did so you know this is i find it really interesting that especially because like clark is above lewis in in rank as uh, as far as i understand it and they developed this really good friendship this bond and then, I mean, what a bond they must have had after, right. after all of this. But well, we'll get to that. Yeah. You'll understand. <laughs> okay, so Lewis uh, is Jefferson's secretary and eventually has quite a bit of um, time to prepare himself for this big adventure. But let's put a pin in that and go to Clark. So Clark's background... He wasn't as formally educated. What's his just growing up right. background? He like? is on
1: the frontier a lot. Uh, he is from a fairly famous family. His older brother, George Rogers Clark, was a Revolutionary War mm-hmm. hero. And basically, George Rogers Clark is the guy who fought the British enough so that we could get the land up to the Mississippi River, which is a big deal. Yeah. Right, so so Clark has, and, and Clark is way too young to fight in the Revolution. This is a, the Clark family is a big family yeah, yeah. that has a lot of kids over over quite a few years. Yeah. <laughs> but Clark has, is grow, grows up under this umbrella, this pressure to yeah. be as, as good as his older brother. <laughs> and he, he, of course, he adores that older right. brother and wants to be like him, so he's very outdoorsy. Very adventurous. He's always in the outdoors hunting, scrambling through the hills, you know, up mountains, down valleys, and things like that. Mm, Sounds familiar. (laughs) Doesn't it? Uh, You kind of have to be ready for that sort of thing. And so Clark does go into the military. Again, he's a little more hard scrabble. He doesn't have that formal education that Lewis has, but he he gets some of the important skills that are going to serve him well on the expedition. He uh, kind of has a, a basis of map making, surveying, he understands the practical side of getting things done in the military. Yeah, and
0: he's certainly not, I mean, he is an intelligent man. Like uh, Despite not having a formal education, it's very clear from his journal entries and the maps that he made. Uh, We'll we'll definitely include links to some images uh, of the maps and and, and the journals, which is really cool. There's all sorts of sketches. Okay, so we kind of have a lot of crossover because, you know, these are two... Young men who have experienced just sort of being adventurous in general, being curious about the world around them. They have some military background, uh, but a fairly different s- set of very specific skills that ultimately just kind of fill in the gaps for each other when they become co-leaders, even though technically Meriwether Lewis
1: is the leader, is the captain. So, yeah, so mm-hmm. Jefferson handpicks Lewis to yeah. lead this expedition. Lewis handpicks Clark to be his second guy, yeah. right, to be his co-leader. And so they, they apply to the Army to have their commissions reinstated. Mm-hmm. And Lewis comes back as a captain. Clark's comes back as only a lieutenant, which uh-huh. is what he was when he— left the army.
0: But so like Lewis did designate him to the rest of the men as a co-captain. Exactly. So even though it was on paper, a lower rank, the men actually did not know that. <laughs>
1: no. And everyone, and everyone, including Lewis referred to Clark as captain Clark. Yeah.
0: I, I admire that so much. I think that's so, <laughs> cause man, you especially because the ability to work so well together. I mean, I'm sure there were, some frustrations and such.
1: Of course, they're on a two and a half year journey, starving to (laughs) death, being miserable, sitting in rain. And, and and they're the best of friends but even the best of friends there's friction yeah yeah, there's disagreement
0: but the fact that that's not that really is not noted or documented in any of the journals not that I not that you probably would be like wow Clark is so annoying today like well
1: and yeah you know, there there's a there's only the slightest hint of written evidence yeah like, like Clark in in one of his diaries when Lewis, jumps ahead. He's like, well, I'm going to go check something out and skips ahead to get to the Pacific Ocean uh-huh. first. Oh, yeah. Clark kind of makes this snide comment of, oh, Lewis, he sure likes to do things first. Yes! You know, I'm paraphrasing, but it's kind of yeah, that. It's yeah. like just the slightest <laughs> hint of annoyance.
0: Oh, uh, yeah, it's so funny. Okay, so we've got a little bit of background about Lewis and Clark, but there's, of course, we've mentioned the other men and the one woman, Uh, or really, I would say, Girl, and I mean she is 16 years old. Yeah, Um, but of course, totally different context for this time. So let's talk about the rest of the men. There's there's a few men that I don't know their names off the top of my head, but I know that there's a Grisot, um, Mm. and Grisot is really interesting. I kind of I wish that I wish that he kept a diary because. What I find fascinating about him is that he brought his fiddle along with him Mm -hmm. the entire journey. And oftentimes this was a great way to have a good time with the Indians and show peaceful relationships and just have fun. Because, you know, of course, seeing a bunch of white men dancing these white men dances, (laughs) you know totally different to this fiddle and just the the smaller moments of like respite or joy or relaxation that anything you could find in in this big adventure it seems that Grizat provided that sort of that sense of home life when you're so right. far away from home and here's the song that you remember listening to you know
1: i think today we take music so for granted mm-hmm. we literally push a button and yeah. we can have any music from our past or anywhere around the world Mm -hmm. in those days music had to be created either with instruments or voice live and in person
0: it shows you how important that was the fact that you know you gotta consider what are you bringing on this trip i mean that yes there's a lot of equipment a lot of trade goods all that stuff but, you know, you've got to carry everything. You've got to haul it somehow. And, yeah, fiddle's not a huge instrument, but... And no
1: one... I don't think anyone would have questioned bringing a fiddle. Yeah. Well, I'm going to bring my fiddle, too. Of okay. course. Yeah, yeah. good.
0: <laughs> Please. <laughs> and so that's an interesting character that I, I just... I'm very curious about, and I haven't, you know, I haven't even tried to learn more about him because there's so much to, right, <laughs> to take right. in about the expedition I, itself. I think
1: the only enlisted man that left anything like a written record, record was Sergeant Ordway.
0: Yeah, there was there was uh, Ordway, and then there was also a White House. Uh, that's right, yeah, yes, that's yeah. right. So there were, again, I can't remember all the names, but, you know, there were... People who were selected because they did have some familiarity with, like, the Hidatsa language or, or trading. Um,
1: and, and almost every member of the expedition was enlisted in the U.S. military. Right. Remember, this this is a military expedition. Mm-hmm. Everyone on the expedition, with the exception of the the translators or the, the laborers that right. are hauling stuff, are subject to U.S. military discipline.
0: Yes, they are. In fact, <laughs> yeah. In fact, that comes into play at least two times because
1: it, it, it's it, yes, it's interesting. We didn't even talk about it just yeah. briefly, but it happens at the very beginning. It does it does? And I think at that point, people are like, you know what? We just we just need to chill out.
0: Yeah. Well. Okay. Okay. I don't know about that because like fifty lashings on my bare back does not sound like you know we just need to chill. So so what but, yeah. I what I heard you know in the in the journals is that. Yes, there was early ish on there was someone who's like, "Oh i I left something back there. I'm gonna go get it and then it's like they're like oh. They he definitely he deserted and yeah. eventually the uh the Indians he was hanging out with maybe I don't i this is just me guessing, but like maybe trying to so he could get back you know or some kind guidance or whatever or, but they're just like, hey is this is this your white guy because <laughs> And they're like, Aha, we found gotcha. him. Gotcha. Yeah, and yeah, apparently, you know, like, the punishment, they could have killed him within the law. Like, yeah. it was punishable by death to desert. And, like, I, I, I wonder if you can give me some context as to, like, why was that punishment so high? Was it just the mission was so
1: important? Because, no, because it was desertion. It was desertion of duty. And the military, honor. well, yeah. not even, not even, not well, okay. not even honor. Yeah. When you have enlisted men in the military who have signed up, you have to keep them in the military. Mm-hmm. This is about discipline and maintaining unit integrity. Right. And so, anyone who tries to break that small world has to be punished
0: severely. Severely. Apparently. And yeah. so,
1: yeah. So he he could have been because they were on active duty. Mm-hmm. He could have been executed, but they lessened his sentence to 50 lashes and of running the gauntlet. Yes,
0: yes, I was going to say, okay, ex- Four times, wasn't it? Yeah, four times. Now, okay, what does running the gauntlet mean?
1: So everyone in the unit gets in, a, uh, they, they make a, a two lines facing each other, and they each get, it depends, a stick or a, or a oh flail God. or something like that, and the man running the gauntlet has to strip to his waist and walk down the aisle between them. Not too fast and not too slow. And ev- going down the aisle, every man has to strike him at least once.
0: Oh, my. That's so much worse than I thought. I, I, I didn't know. So I was just like, is this just like, all right, do some laps, you know? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's, so, so, the nope. man
1: is, so the man is beaten wow. by his colleagues. Yeah. And the colleagues have to take part. It's a whole psychological yeah. thing, too, right?
0: I'm talking about that because, like, okay, after you go through that, it's not like, okay, you served your punishment, now you're back with the te- No, nope, no, you are no longer officially part of this team. Those,
1: Those, those. – they did that to a couple of guys, mm-hmm. didn't
0: they? Uh, well, yeah. There were, I think, there were two instances um, where they were like, where that kind of punishment was enforced, and that they were no longer recognized as an official part of the corps, and then they had to still go, still face all of these seemingly unsurmountable challenges, and have the worst of the grunt duty or whatever you want to like, the the worst of the labor, and get no honor, right? <laughs> for it. Yeah, and then be sent home
1: <laughs> yeah. later.
0: The stakes were pretty high for the for the men. I mean, okay, so we 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 got this core of thirty to forty men, depending on where we're at, and then there's also let's talk about Toussaint Chabano Yeah,
1: so so the the core makes its way from when it finally leaves out in May of eighteen o four, making its way up the Missouri River against the flow, which means all these men have to push or pull wow. the. Heavy boat full of supplies, mile after mile, day after day.
0: And you mentioned supplies. I mean, let's just briefly go over the kind of heavy oh stuff gosh. that they're bringing. I mean, of course, there's like scientific
1: instruments, like, you know, surveying. They bring compass, a clock and- that ends up not working. <laughs> uh, they, they're, yeah, they're bringing in surveying instruments. They're bringing a ton of trade. They're having to bring ammunition. They're right, bringing for
0: no a, some, some fanciful experimental, uh, like, portable boat that. Does not end up working right. well. He, kind of yeah. an embarrassment for Lewis, but uh, yeah, so, he had to spend things. money on all this stuff.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, there, and and you know, enough food for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, extra clothing, tr- again, trade goods. They're having to bring medicine. They're having to bring alcohol because the army has to have its its rum rations and and things like that. So there are tons, literally tons, yeah. of supplies that are on this killboat and the two pirogues, and which so are going- which are smaller. <laughs> Type of boats, yeah,
0: but. and so they <laughs> they have to pull these boats now, on land,
1: right? No, this is in the water. In the water? How does that work? So <clears throat> you get the the kill boat is the biggest one. Okay. And you put ropes on the side, and tie ropes to the side, <laughs> and then you put the ropes on the shore. And so the guys <laughs> on the shore are pulling the ropes to pull this big boat wow. against the current up the river <sighs> through the water because it's still easier than bringing a... a, a over land. Yeah. Wow. Because you can't have that many wagons and horses and mules because Mm -hmm. then you have to feed the horses and mules. Mm -hmm. And what do you do with the wagons? Anyway, it's it's a very complicated thing. So this is, long story short, (laughs) they go all the way up the Missouri River. And as it starts to get cold, winter of 1804, 05, they come upon the Hidatsa and the Mandan Indians mm-hmm. who fortunately are some of the friendliest Indians that they meet on the entire expedition.
0: Oh, and they they make certain to note who is uh, hospitable among them and who is not. Right. But <laughs> but uh, apparently it's not really until we get closer to the Pacific Ocean that we get the less hospitable. And we'll, right. and we'll we'll talk about because, why.
1: Because the Hidatsa and the Mandan are far enough east that they ha- and, and close to Canada, they've had many interactions with Europeans coming into trade, fur trade, all these sorts of things. As a matter of fact, as you, to get to your point, this is where they finally meet Toussaint Charbonneau. That's
0: right. So Toussaint Charbonneau, he is a French Canadian fur trader, and he has been living among the Hidatsa for I don't know, probably a number of years. And he has uh two Uh, Native American wives. One is known as Otter Woman, and we know really nothing else. Other than her name, yeah. Other than her name. And then there is Sacagawea. Now, of course, you've probably heard her name Sacagawea, um, Sacagawea. Like, uh, the audiobook I was listening to said Sacagawea. We say Sacagawea. There really is, I mean, there's debate, but it's just because we only know how Lewis and Clark would phonetically Say that, it a it sa or sa? You know, it, it's hard to say, right? But uh, I personally like sa
1: Sa it just seems to sound right, yeah. It's a little
0: softer. Um, but anyway, so so we'll go with Sakagawaya, and she is one of his wives, and he's been working as a fur trader among the Hidatsa, and he gets this opportunity to offer translation services, not necessarily his translation <laughs> services. I mean, um, <laughs> he offers his wife, Sacagawea, and now she is only 16 years old at this time, which is just amazing that she goes on this adventure and survives, and with a
1: baby, with a child. Well, at this this point, she's still pregnant. Yeah, exactly, exactly. She's she's just pregnant. Yeah, right, right.
0: (laughs) Try crossing the Rocky Mountains or whatever, you know. So he offers the translation services through Sacagawea, his wife, who, let's give a little background on Sacagawea, what we do know about her. We do know that she was kidnapped by the Hidatsa when she was living in her Shoshone village, which is in, you know, like, modern-day Montana area. So she's captured at 12. Uh, She's sort of this more prized captive because she is related to high ranking people in her village uh, maybe a chief you know it's, chief it can be kind of a vague
1: yeah term. that's a that's a loaded term but yeah <laughs> we're going to use it because it's just easier yeah yeah
0: so you know she so she lives among the hadatsa for a number of years and then she is sold to uh, Charbonneau and so this is a, a young girl who is taken from her home against her will forced into a marriage against her will and then is basically forced <laughs> I mean she had no choice so yes uh, she is forced to go on this crazy expedition that she, I'm sure she could just never have imagined but there's a really cool part of this we'll get to a little bit later. Um, obviously, she becomes quite helpful in many, many ways, many, many ways. way, uh, way more than just the translation. Um, way more than Toussaint Charbonneau. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> who apparently <laughs> was terrible at, uh, at his boating skills were remarked uh, in the in the journalist <laughs>
1: being very timid. I <laughs> always wondered how he even got out there. Right, uh, right. Yeah. It, maybe that's why he was in the villages. He was just hanging out because yeah. he. Cause he wasn't very good at anything else. <laughs> this
0: is fine, you know. <laughs> I can hang out here with the Hidatsa. <laughs> yeah, so that's what we. So that is why Toussaint Charbonneau is on this expedition, really, as you know, a little more manpower. But most importantly, he offers his uh, Shoshone wife who has also lived among the hadatsa and well you know the language native american languages are going to vary quite a bit as they're going out there but there are a lot of similarities there's also the usage of hand signs um and so she is certainly going to be familiar with this and charbonneau too because he's making he's making trades he's a he's a fur trader so that's why you know he's hired in the first place but then so Kagawea proves to be just, I mean...
1: The queen of the core of discovery. Yeah, for real. I mean, real. <laughs> I, mean I,
0: I know there's this sort of, the, the the myth version is like, she guided them and pointed all the way, you know, to every direction or whatever. And no, but, but she was... Stu-
1: I think the stuff she did is actually more interesting. Because exactly. it's more human.
0: Yeah, so let's just, you know, we'll, we'll briefly go over the cool things that she offered. And one of those was... Foraging for food, so she was able to. Oh, I I learned recently there was a cool technique. So apparently, um, mice out like wild mice out in the uh, plains would themselves gather. It was a sort of an artichoke type of looking thing. I can't remember the scientific name or whatever. But so these mice basically do half the work for you. They're just like, all right, I'm gonna get kind of like squirreling away, you know, these roots, and the and so she had a technique of. Basically just getting a long stick and going into their little mice holes and and getting all the roots from these, like stealing (laughs) these roots from the mice. And, but, you know, she was able to offer something that was more than the gross elk meat or something, you know, like the preserved elk meat or bison meat over and over and over again. And, and, and. Oftentimes it's described as like just straight up rancid, you know. Right. And so she's able to forage for not only those kind of things, but, you know, for for berries, for commas root, which I, I'm curious to to taste that one day. I don't know what camas root is. got to be a way to get
1: it. Yeah, yeah,
0: for <laughs> sure, for sure. And then eventually, uh, you know, once we get toward the, the Rockies, she starts to recognize the major landmarks. And she kind of knows, wow, I am close to my home and um, on several occasions just, you know, dives into the waters to save valuable instruments when a boat overturns. Well,
1: Lewis's journals, right? There's a a trunk with Lewis's journals. One of the boats overturns, probably Toussaint Charbonneau's Yeah. And and the journals that he's been keeping tip into the water. You Uh, can imagine. Oh Ah! my God, yeah, (laughs) And apparently everyone's like (laughs) just basically doing the the, the 1800s version of panicking, running in circles and shouting, (laughs) and Skagaway is like, huh, Uh. and just like gets in the water and very calmly fishes them uh-huh. out. And here you go. And here you go. Yeah. Is this what you were looking for?
0: Yeah, probably with a baby on her back too, probably. or something.
1: You know, <laughs> she, was, she, probably, she probably said, "Here, hold this." Yeah,
0: right, right. Yeah. <laughs>
1: take the take the papoose <laughs> off of her yeah. back. Hand it to, to a panicking white person uh, and go get the, the journals.
0: Yeah. So I mean, we have we, there's a lot to uh, to be thankful for. Oh, and of course, I think the probably the most important thing that we have not mentioned is that this is a woman. With a baby among a party of men, who, white men who right. are you know probably intimidating without with her in front of that party, much less intimidating because clearly this is not a war party if a woman with a baby is among the men, especially if she's first in sight. So that's a huge benefit to the expedition right. um, which
1: which they did not remotely anticipate. Yeah. as a matter of fact, Lewis and Clark, we're kind of trying to talk Charbonneau out of bringing her. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't want a pregnant – I mean, right. who would? Right, I mean, right, right. You know, we don't want a pregnant woman to come on this very strenuous exertion that yeah. we're undergoing. And he insisted, and they're like, well, okay. And then, wow. Please,
0: if I don't bring her, I'm absolutely valueless. No, <laughs> I'm, just kidding. I'm sure he did some good things. Somebody, but. yes. Yeah. So when they get to the area of near the Rocky Mountains and Sacagawea starts to recognize landmarks and know uh, more information about uh, the geography and what roots and plants and stuff you can forage and all that, well, they meet the Shoshones, and she is from a Shoshone village. And who do they meet? None other than... Her brother, uh, or at least we, a family member for sure, because uh, the the family structure is a little more vague. Mm-hmm. You know, could be a cousin, could be a brother. Either way, it's the same like importance. But she know? knew
1: who it was. Yes, and yeah, they recognized each other. Oh, after how amazing! Five years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: maybe a little more. Yeah. So, uh, oh right, right. And that helps. That helps a whole lot. So right. they could not have even you know guessed that that would happen and this is in, a, in the area where they desperately need horses and while the Shoshones are are a relatively poor tribe they do have a lot of horses yes. <laughs> so it was very serendipitous that um, she was reunited uh, with her brother they have that goodwill and they're very very helpful and fair you know in their dealings um, so that's just so cool But yeah, so uh, an amazing woman. We'll we'll have other things to say about her as we truck along our adventure. But as they get toward um, the mountains, so we're going through
1: plains. We're going through. So they wintered at Fort Mandan first. We got to say that. So, and because I think that's important to talk about because they have to, they've got to hole up Mm -hmm. in the very, because they're in the northern part of what is now the United States. It gets cold. And so they build Fort Mandan and they basically huddle there. And yeah. it's so cold outside, they're having to go <laughs> chop pieces of meat off the dead animals. Oh, my gosh. And bringing them inside so they'll wow. thaw and can actually eat them. Yeah. So they spend months. Wow. Talk about going stir-crazy. Yeah. They spend months in this camp trying to stay warm, waiting for the spring to come so they can start hmm. off crossing the plains and heading towards... The West towards yeah. the Rocky, what we call the Rocky Mountains.
0: Yeah. So there's, it's not just like, all right, let's go, do-do-do-do-do, adventure. And it's like,
1: I'm gonna stay in this log room. Yeah. That's maybe 20 by 20 with, with 16 <laughs> other guys for three months.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. The, I'm sure there was a, a whole lot of fiddle playing. But of course, <laughs> right. at the same time during this, you know, they're meeting with the Mandan tribes right. and and ch- kind of getting a, a, the best lay of the land that they can um based on what they know and preparing for this journey so when spring arrives that's when they can really start like officially going toward lands that have uh, not been recorded recorded yeah yeah yeah, by by white men
1: so one of the things that jefferson desperately wants that that americans have hoped for and that lewis and clark are look looking for. It's one of the main goals of the expedition is to determine the Northwest Passage. Right, right. The assumption is there must be a waterway that goes from the Pacific Ocean across the Continental Divide into the central part of the North American continent and can go to the east. Because remember, this is in the time period when there's there's only two ways to get places, over land and over water. And at this time period, the roads are terrible yeah. water is by far that's i mean that's why they pulled the boat up all the way to the missouri river because it was actually easier yeah. <laughs> than trying to go over land water is water yes. rivers are the super highways in this time period mm-hmm. so they're looking for the super highway that will go from the mississippi to the pacific and so they're trying to find that northwest passage and so this is why they're they you know they've only got so many people they only have so much time and they have to try and, and guess uh, I'm going to go ahead and skip to the end and give a spoiler alert. Uh-huh. There is no Northwest Passage. <gasps> what? There is no easy water route from the Mississippi River to the Pacific Ocean. There's, yeah. there's not. And they, and and by going these different routes, going and going west and coming back, they realize, sadly, Mr. Jefferson and all of American economic hopes. There is no Northwest Passage. Yeah. A lot of it it's still going to have to go over land a lot yeah, to get yeah. from one place to the other. Yeah,
0: so, I mean, and, and that kind of, like, ability to go there quickly and back, I mean, that probably doesn't happen until, like, the arrival of trains Trains, and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we, we said they start out in spring, but uh, it's it's May of 1804, so we're approaching, you know, end of spring, into summer, and uh, we, we said that it's amazing that they survive. Now, there was one death that was quite early on mm-hmm. and this was uh sergeant floyd and this is in um let's see ah uh, july only july they start out officially in may and then july uh, sergeant floyd who was um they remarked upon him as being a you know a very good <laughs> soldier and right. everything dies of uh, appendicitis which am i correct in thinking like that's something that they really i mean he probably would have died of that he Anywhere? would have died of that
1: anyway. There's, yeah. there is even back then, ruptured appendix, appendices, appendices. Yes, ruptured <laughs> appendices were very difficult to treat. Diagnosis, they knew something was going on, but they could happen so rapidly, and it's not like they could just cut someone open and and cut a piece out. That was that was not the way things were done. And if it was done, it was done with a very experienced surgeon. Not to army captains mm-hmm, who right. who basically had basic first aid knowledge. Yeah. Now yeah. they brought some surgery kits and things in case they needed to do stuff, but the medicine and the health care on the expedition was very much medicine focused and not uh, surgical inter interposition focused.
0: Yeah. I mean Clark definitely did some bleeding, which was, you know, yeah. popular still in eighteen oh four. Which, which apparently only worsened Floyd. But, you know, in a way, maybe just put him out of his misery quicker because right. he was going to die. Yes. But they, so they, they bury him by a river and name it Floyd's River. Um, they actually visit the same location on their way back to, um, to remember him. So that was the only death, but you mentioned, you know, the types of illnesses and everything. I mean, they definitely face severe malnutrition, hypothermia uh, or frostbite at some points, um, stomach problems from all that. Lots
1: of stomach problems. Lots
0: of stomach problems. Not only just from, like, eating the same meat or or just not eating at all in a way, uh, but also they're not being used to the new... Like the commas root, you know. Right, right. Like I remember, <laughs> I remember uh, one injury is basically like we've eaten nothing but commas root and it hurts, you know. <laughs> but you know we're alive, so right, and we're eating
1: something. Yeah, um, yeah.
0: They they were also introduced to the illnesses that the Native American tribes faced, and you say that Clark only had a very you know, rudimentary understanding of medical knowledge and all that. But to them, he was big medicine. Yes. <laughs> yeah, because, like, he, he mentions that there were a lot of um, vision issues and that giving what was called eye water. I don't know what that is. that just, like, I think saline it, uh, solution? No, or? it's,
1: um, I, I believe, yeah. it's like a, a form of unguent, which we would call an ointment, that had some herbal, pro- it did have legitimate herbal yeah. properties that turns out they didn't know it at the time but yeah. it was basically an antibiotic oh. so, so basically this one tribe that I think the chief son had a really bad yes. well what we knew we know of as an eye infection mm. and so they put this unguent on the on the the chief son's eyes and in a couple of days his eyes are better yeah and it's yeah. like whoa
0: right yeah so I mean this is a big deal for the Native Americans and was very helpful because it's like uh, yeah we'll trade with you please cure us please help us yeah. you know and and you know he was he was happy to do so and uh, <laughs> had, had many a patient lined up um, but, but it was interesting for them to document those types of struggles as well because keep in mind that a lot of these native tribes especially as you're going more toward the rocky mountains and the rougher terrain and just the harsher living environments that this is sort of the would diaspora be the correct word the the people left over from well
1: um, i don't know if diaspora is is because oh how far back i know i know it's like the, the, (laughs) the, 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 the tribes that they are encountering have been in those areas for several hundred years So they're established tribes, but just like all human groups, they're sometimes in conflict with one another over resources and boundaries and things like that. And so there are still pushings and pullings of these different groups. One group will come in, push another group out of a more fertile land, and then that group has to go and push another group. And
0: <laughs> Sounds familiar. Doesn't <laughs> yeah. it? Yes. But, but I guess I was more thinking about the how the Native American populations were just decimated by smallpox prior to this, yeah, and that the, those tribes, like the remnants of those people, go into you know, sort of desperation mode in these more um, harsher environments and everything. Right.
1: So that, so yes. so that had happened about, oh, anywhere from 250 to 300 years before Mm -hmm. this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so we're talking about the initial European contacts and when the Spanish had come to this area, they brought smallpox among other diseases. Decimation is not a good word because that means only one-tenth of the people died. Some estimates are that (sighs) 90%... Of the entire population, yeah. native population of North America, passed away in about a fifty to seventy-five year period. <sighs> that is because just of disease.
0: Insane to think about. I can't even really. It's quanti- post-apocalyptic. Like, yeah, I mean it literally yeah. is.
1: And so the remnants of those very complex larger mm-hmm. tribes, you're right, have settled down because they don't have the infrastructure mm. to feed that many people or house that right. many people gathered into one spot. Yeah. So they split up into smaller groups and go to smaller areas, which is the tribes, not just in the West, but yeah. pretty much for the entire North. I mean, the Cherokees and the Creeks here, right. it's the same story, but yeah. b- but I digress. Right.
0: <laughs> I think it was just the fact that there were tribes that were just way more impoverished than others. So. Right,
1: because they had been pushed off of that fertile land, fertile hunting territory. And so, uh, you know, some some of these tribes that they, like, you're right, with the, some of the tribes that they encounter... They're not very well off. I mean, they, they are not living in the best areas. They are malnourished. They may not have access to as much clean water as they need. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are not on the main uh, hunting grounds anymore, and they are just eking out an existence. Yeah,
0: I mean, one example I remember was um, in the journals describing, I think it may have been Clark, but he was riding on horseback. Okay, so I think like an, an elk or a bison or something. It's like, we killed one. Let's go all, let's all go to the meet. And they were riding on a horseback together, like two on one, one horse. And uh, Clark or whoever it was, either Lewis or Clark was, it was going so fast. He was like, slow down. And, you know, to get to this thing. But this, this young Native American guy was so Desperate for food, that he leaps off of his horse and runs the rest of the way. And maybe, like, he, he estimates, like, a mile to this and literally starts eating the raw meat. He's so, you know, maybe that's like, I. I I don't know if that's sort of a, 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 a normal thing, but it seemed like something that was, the way they described it was like they were out of desperation, just so thankful to have any sustenance at that point that, I mean, because they're starving. Like some of some of these um, tribes were in really, really desperate situations. So just something to point out that there's like quite a variety of, I mean, what, what's the word? Just like
1: the socioeconomic yeah, status. Yeah, 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 yeah. To, to, essentially. For yeah. some very modern word. Yes, outside. exactly. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that was really interesting to learn along these journals, just sort of comparing and contrasting the, the cultures of the Native Americans who often had, you know, crossover with their cultures and beliefs and um, their ceremonies that they had. So that was really cool to document as well, just the big differences. And it did seem that the further toward the mountains you got, the more desperate and the people were. And also the more difficult to trade with them because the they don't have a lot to trade with uh, other than horses, horses, but they need the horses. So you really got to bargain with them. And and apparently, the you know some of the tribes out there. I I personally think, you know, probably desperation. I mean, if you're if you're that desperate to run a mile as, as fast as you can to eat some deer intestines or whatever it was, you right. know, like <laughs> then yeah, you're gonna you're probably gonna steal some things. You're oh, probably sure. gonna ask for more than you maybe should. Things right. like that. So there were some frustrations uh, with the trade, but let's just talk about. How would that negotiation how would that conversation even take place? I mean you're you're Mary Weather Lewis who seemed to be the, the sort of the the lead as far right. as the interpretation diplomatic kind of stuff uh, went so you know you might make uh, a smoke signal to say like, hey we're here we exist and then the nearby Native American tribe might also do a smoke signal to say, all right, come on over whatever but once you actually get to that interaction, Talk to me about the the risks <laughs> and the process.
1: Right. It's the core of Discovery needs these supplies desperately, especially food and especially horses. Because when they left Fort Mandan, they sent their boat back to to St. Louis. Mm. Can't cross the Rockies in a boat. Right. You gotta have and, and you can't carry everything. So no. you have to have horses. A mm-hmm. lot of horses, so they're having to trade. The, the native tribes for these horses to get over the Rockies, especially the Bitterroot Mountains. So how are you going to do this? You don't you don't share a language at all. And as you pointed out earlier, there's an expedition of men carrying weapons. They obviously have a military bearing because they're soldiers. And right. they all walk up, thank goodness to Kagawea and the, the baby is there, mm-hmm. so that they know it's not a direct war party, but it's still a potential threat. And so you you meet these these two very disparate cultures and, and peoples meet and you have to begin complex negotiations which is when the translations become so important yeah. and so you know even even having to say something as hello we come in peace can take 10 or 15 minutes as uh, Charbonneau and well Lewis Charbonneau Sacagawea. And
0: the, there was a French speaker um, on, I can't remember who it was, but there was a French speaker who was also um, a little more familiar with like the Indian languages as right. well.
1: So it's it uh, several people. <laughs> several people just to get ideas across back and forth between these new tribes. All while using made.
0: those hand signs as well to be as clear as possible, which I thought was really cool. Right. Okay, so they make the, this very slow process of translation. There's also a lot of like ceremony. and I mean, this is a big deal. Right, they have to
1: give gifts, which is why they bring so many of those trade goods, because they're trying to establish good relations, not just nationally, but for literal trade purposes.
0: And talk to me, like the trade goods, we know, I I like the, talk about the medal first. Yeah, so
1: one of the things to establish these relations is uh, Jefferson had had several medals done, and they had, you know, an image of him on, which he, he was a fairly, Modest fellow, and that probably <laughs> made him uncomfortable. But he also probably loved it. Yeah, yeah. And this, this—it's about two, two and a half inches in diameter. Mm-hmm. Uh, a bronze, or some, some of them in silver nice. uh medals that had, you know, the United States of America, Thomas Jefferson, president, and on the back it had two clasped hands, like shaking hands, and then it says peace and friendship. Yeah. And so they would present these as gifts to the headman. Uh, of each tribe sort of as a way to say, you know, we are giving you this gift. We, we recognize your, your leadership in this area, but also here's our leader, and he's kind of a big deal, and you're going to wear his mark to show that you have established relations <laughs> with the great father in yes, Washington, D.C. Yes,
0: the great father. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and so these medallions, you know, so, so that's what the the would get, but they're also bringing things like, you know, s- standard trade goods, beads, extra metal kettles and things like that stuff that would be very common in the fur trade Mm -hmm. they're having they've had to haul this stuff all the way from the east to up the Missouri River across the plains with them and now they're exchanging these goods and they're exchanging these goods for the things that they desperately need like especially the horses yeah especially the horses and so again just trying to communicate this with hand signals with at least at least three languages in place sometimes more right depending upon how many translations you had to go through
0: yeah yeah um, yeah and another big symbol and uh i guess like a ceremonial process was just the the classic smoking of the peace pipe like that was that's not a myth that's it's a real it's thing, a real thing.
1: <laughs> oh and then um oh i don't want to get too much on this thing but
0: <laughs> do it Lewis,
1: Lewis had his air rifle.
0: Oh, yes. Yeah. Talk to me about the, oh, air, the rifle. air rifle.
1: This was big magic. He <laughs> brought this. So it's so it's a it's a musket, but it doesn't use black powder. It uses compressed air. And the back where the stock is is this reservoir that you have to pump, 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 pump to get enough air pressure. But once you screw it into the back of the gun, you load the gun up with the usual lead balls, and uh, this particular one held 10. And if you pumped up enough pressure in that stock, you could load and fire this gun, and and it shot as far and as strongly as a regular black powder flintlock wow. musket, but it was quiet. Oh,
0: ah, that's cool. Because though. it was an air rifle. That's that is magic. That is
1: big magic. So he would take this out and say, "Oh, look at this," and then like fifty yards <laughs> away, the you know the yeah. log would jump up, wow. and, and, and and they were like. Whoa!
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, mean,
1: that's cool. That's a now. laser. That's, that's a laser <laughs> to us. That is like a laser. Right. That's a right? nuclear laser. <laughs> but but it's this air rifle. And and you know he 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 didn't use it. He brought it along. He didn't know why he would need it because he loved technology. Uh-huh. and gigaws. Yeah. But uh, but it turns out that was a great tool to have to sh- sort of show this this big magic that his group mm. had. He never he never took it hunting or anything right. like that. It was. It was a diplomatic tool. That's
0: fascinating. And and, you know, you saying big magic, we have not talked about someone else who is also a unique uh, figure in this, and that's the the slave servant of um, Captain Clark York. And I say I connect him to big magic because keep in mind, uh, yeah, a lot of these Native Americans have never seen white people before, but they have definitely never seen a black person before. And Uh here is York. And they are mesmerized and just like they're. <laughs> I remember in the journals, Clark, <laughs> Clark says that he told the that he described to the little Native American children that yeah, this where he comes from, he eats children. I was like, come on, Clark. Like <laughs> But, you know, you got to entertain yourself somehow. Oh, right, right. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> but, but he was um, very important along the journey, an excellent uh, marksman and, and a hunter. It seemed like he and Clark had a, like, yeah, I know, slavery, not, not good. But apparently he and Clark grew up together. And so uh. there's a different kind of bond with that. And he never outright, and I don't know contextually, like, if there's a difference, but he never outright calls him my slave. Like he's my servant, York. Right. Um, well,
1: that that was the that was the social social behaviors at the time. Yeah, it was yeah. uncomfortable to uh-huh. call someone a slave. Why? But it's 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 strange. Uh, again, slavery is such a complex issue, especially when you get into one great thing about this is it shows a personal relationship between master and servant, Mm -hmm. between owner and slave. While never good, but uh, apparently, based on some of the writings, Clark was not a friendly master. Mm. Uh, He he made sure that the people that he owned knew that he owned them Ah, and they would do the things. But somehow, on this expedition, because of what it was, Mm. all the things, Mm -hmm. you know, capital T, all the things that this expedition was, that I'm the boss and you're the slave tended to fade away Mm -hmm. during the expedition because York is an important part. He's just another one of the guys, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, You know, Clark and Lewis are still the captains, but York is just another guy, and he's participating in all the things that are necessary, and when he becomes this magical thing Mm. to the native tribes... He he gets this importance, and he re- he recognizes, and yeah. Clark recognizes yeah. this sense of importance. Yeah. The unfortunate thing is apparently after the expedition is over and they go back to, quote, civilization, it just goes right back to the way it was.
0: Well, I do know that he does eventually get his freedom, though. He does. Yeah, he yeah. does. Now, but you're right. You're right. I mean, imagine— Immediately
1: after, it's like, well, we're back in the East now, slave. Yeah. right, um, right. Yeah,
0: but it's not too long after they get back to where he— is granted his he's free, freedom. Yeah, he's, given, he's granted his so, freedom. So I mean, who knows what what his right. life was like after that? But I mean, just imagine going from being a slave in Virginia in the early 1800s and then being treated like you are divine, um,
1: right? <laughs> by these by entire groups of people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So and was, and and uh, do they mention this in the journals about what the men of the tribe would do? Oh, uh, the, the they would. R- they would, they would, yeah, they would, yeah. they wanted to touch his yes. skin and just see if it rubbed off. Yeah. But because he was such big magic, women from the tribe would be offered to him so that he uh-huh. could create yep. younglings uh. with magic as well.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I didn't know if we were going to go into all that, but uh, let's just say that happened a lot and not just to York. No. <laughs> that was just a part of a lot of the cultures. I mean, that like, man could have multiple wives. uh they might often be like uh, Sakagawea captured from a different party. Um, and it was sad to,
1: you know, it's it's like another example of like, yep, zoom out. They're all human. Right. Um, well, and, and apparently uh, many of the women were were fine with this mm, because mm-hmm. it was going to, if they had a son with status. the divine being, yeah. it was going to increase their status. Yeah, right, right. And, so, and that's, I mean, it's, it's interesting. We know so little about... Early Native American sexuality. Right, yeah. We don't have to use them. We know so little about this, but they seem to have been a much more open society. And when um, when they took part in interacting with, with these folks from the East, things happened.
0: So in the journals, Lewis makes quite a few points of how unchaste <laughs> these tribes are and how many times he's ha- he has to tell his men, like, no, hanging out with the women. Right. <laughs> sometimes the tribes are like oh, wh- you don't want my wife like oh, right. i am offended by i am this. now insulted yeah <laughs> yeah. So. and so is she yeah right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was some pretty fascinating uh like cultural information as well and so like all of these things are learning these things when they're having these interactions and making trades and negotiations and, and they're also at the same time being like, okay, you're warring with this tribe. Uh, the great father will not have that. We need peace out here. And oftentimes they would establish peace among each other. Cause it's going to be very mutually beneficial to eventually have trade um, to their tribe and, and have that status from the white man and everything. Right. right. So, okay. Where do we even go from here? Okay. Oh, one more one more very valuable member of the team we have not mentioned is is the dog Seaman. Yeah. Now he was a, a I don't know, the pictures describe him as like a, like a almost like a Newfoundland, you know? Like those really big, like the yeah. kind when you're, not necessarily the kind with like the barrels on them or whatever, but a big dog. You some, know? Place,
1: some place has a statue of Lewis and Aww. Clark and Seaman. Oh, that's so uh, cute. And he is, he's a, he's like half as big as they are.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's a big boy. And this is, this is Meriwether Lewis's dog, it's his dog. And one occasion in the journals that shows how much he loves this dog, okay, one, for some context, there have been instances when the men, you know, the natives have tried to steal things or they've gotten in like a brawl or whatever, some kind of confrontation. And like one of the men's like, I want to kill this man. And Lewis is like, no, that's, that's not going to help us. But <laughs> when one of the tri- one of the natives stole Seaman, his dog. He was like, you go find that dog, and you, if you have to kill him, do it. Like, do yeah, the man you, who stole it. Anyone
1: who, yeah. Yeah he touched my dog he dies yeah. <laughs> everybody go get
0: him I mean I think all of us dog lovers can relate but
1: <laughs> but he was serious about and that and the men were all about it too oh, of course yeah. of course. I'm sure everyone had fallen in love with him yeah exactly exactly and, yeah so and, and they did eventually rescue some yes, men by the way yes
0: they did they did so and he uh, as far as we know he made it all the way back um, yeah. and you know what let's talk about uh, Jean Baptiste I don't even think we said his name yet this is oh, Sacagawea's yeah. baby Jean Baptiste who also had a fun nickname that I don't know if Clark gave him this nickname. I think
1: I think it was Clark.
0: Yeah, I kind of wonder if this was maybe something Sacagawea called her baby because I could imagine. I don't have any evidence for this, but I could imagine that Charbonneau is going to be the one to be like, "His name is Jean Baptiste, you know, French," right. <laughs> right. and uh, his the baby's nickname ends up being Pompey, and that sounds more like I don't know something. Closer to Native American name than Jean Baptiste, right. so so I don't know where the name comes from, but that's how Clark refers to uh, the baby Pompey, and it's it's clear that he he gets an attachment to this baby, and I'm sure the men did. I mean. Ugh, you're out here in the wilderness and like, yeah, crying baby, not so fun, but cute laughing baby. I mean, that's got to bring some joy right. uh, uh, to the to the men. So um, Jean-Baptiste Pompey makes it, you know, there and back as well. And and to go on a side note, he ends up becoming a, a frontiersman as well. And and Clark, oh, more, most importantly, uh, Clark offers to raise him as his own for Sacagawea and Charbonneau because he can give him a a better education a formal education a better life in Virginia rather than out the out in the frontier and and she I mean we can't know how Sacagawea really felt about this but we can assume that if she wants the quote-unquote best for her child you know then that's what she can offer and and you know Keep in mind, she's also 17 years old, and I know things right. are different contextually. But
1: and I, you know, maybe this is maybe this is more benefit of the doubt than than we should give. But mm-hmm. I can't imagine Clark would have gone through this entire expedition with her, and then opposed her wishes. Right. At right. The end. Yeah. Or, you know. Later on, yeah. when, when when he when he does take right Pompey in, or Jean Baptiste. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: And and something that was really cute, and ugh, I really want to visit this site one day. Um, it's the only documented, like, physical evidence along the journey's route that exists, and there is a carving at what, what's called Pompey's pillar, but it, Clark really called it Pompey's tower, the later author who got the journals, you know, together or whatever, decided Pompey's Pillar sounded more fun. <laughs> um, Clark wasn't the poet, so. <laughs> but he, he, Clark, he, he, he carves his initials into Pompey's Tower, and that's still there, and I I have to see that one yeah. day, that's just so cool. And it's this big, big rock face um, that is just like a landmark, you know, so you can visit that to the, to this day somewhere out in Yellowstone wow. National Park. It's So cool, I that is definitely a bucket list thing for me. I think we've covered every, basically, all, all the roles. We've got we, the roles.
1: We've mm-hmm. got a lot of the cultural interactions.
0: Yeah. Uh, now, just talking about the, we've talked a lot about the challenges. And, of course, um, you know, when you're crossing the Rocky Mountains, and especially when it's, like, super cold, super rainy. Oh, the rains. Oh, the oh. mosquitoes. The, uh,
1: oh. I, I, I'm trying to remember... At Fort Clatsop, when they were on the Pacific coast, yeah. that second wintering that they had, it was something like, and again, months, yeah. right? They're having to wait for spring to come. Mm-hmm. There are only like 10 or 15 days the entire winter when it doesn't rain yeah. or snow.
0: Mm-hmm. So again, you're cooped months. up. And like, you're already like, imagine, yes, the first winter was bad. Oof. But in
1: a sense, halfway, it's like, we're halfway done. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: But you know, I, I could imagine that being a pretty exciting point um, because at that point, I, I'm pretty sure at that point you're sort of getting clues that you're reaching the Pacific Ocean. Like I, I do, I don't know at what point, but I do remember like them sort of tasting the water and it's a little brackish, you know. Yes. So it was very yeah. exciting getting closer to the ocean. But for Clatsop, this is a time when Lewis really dives into his journaling, and so we get a lot of more reflective kind of prose from him in a more poetic way. He was a a nice writer. And, you know, they talk about how uh, the Clatsop tribe was also one of those tribes that they were like,
1: oh, thank God they're nice. (laughs) (laughs) They're going to help
0: us. So they stay there. And then eventually, you know, going to reach the Pacific Ocean. We're almost there. And through all of this, like some of the, um, they describe some of the terrain as, really, really rough and sharp because of these... uh, It was some kind of shrubbery that had like really, really sharp... um, Like
1: thorns? Yeah, yeah.
0: Something like that that was just like... They had to go through a lot of moccasins. So, I mean, they were making... They probably went through hundreds of pairs of moccasins throughout this journey but especially there so they're you know they're having to go through that terrain but eventually oh they make it to the pacific ocean and not only that there is the carcass of a gigantic whale and you may say okay so, but this is a glorious sight to our adventurers because whale oil is going to be uh, essential to whale meat, and mm-hmm. of course, you can trade with it now. Apparently once the oh this was funny too Sokagawea insisted <laughs> that she go to see this this monstrous beast you know <laughs> which I thought was funny right. just like little tiny glimpses into her attitude you know <laughs> her personality and so uh, they they go and and a lot of the Native Americans have already like taken quite a bit but I mean this is a this is a big whale so they're able to get whale oil for their lanterns and I mean what else would you use whale oil for
1: I mean and, just yeah just that and, yeah. and fire starters and things yeah
0: like yeah that. so very useful. So it's kind of like a just a nice little uh, gift to receive right.
1: at this. You can cook in the whale fat. You can oh, eat yeah. the whale meat. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was a pretty exciting uh, sight and uh, uh, apparently most exciting for Lewis because uh, what did he do?
1: <laughs> he oh, straight. yeah, yeah. So, when yeah, when they knew they were close, um, <laughs> he's like, okay, so uh, there's some – there's a lot of camp things that need to be organized. Clark, you take care of that. I'm gonna just scout ahead and see if I can find a good path to the Wait. Pacific Ocean. Well, he found <laughs> such a good path yeah. that he just kept going. <laughs> he just kept going so that he could be the first man.
0: Oh man! But you know, you can imagine. Like after all of that, it's like I might as well keep going and see. Right. You know. I mean, they're very
1: excited. Yeah. But you know, it's it's interesting. That is that is classic. That's classic Lewis and classic. Clark because like you said Lewis Lewis when he writes well is a fantastic writer mm-hmm. but he's he's almost so educated that he easily gets melancholy and mm. he gets caught up in this stuff and you know there are gaps in the journals mm-hmm. for weeks yeah. he'll he'll he because he just he I guess he gets lost yeah. and I mean emotionally right. and, and psychologically lost and he just doesn't feel like writing. And then all of a sudden, when it does come to him, it's pages and pages and pages, yeah. pages to, to catch up. Yeah, and it's and it's this beautiful, you know, sublime stuff about the vistas mm. and the the importance of this and this grand human adventure. And Clark's back there, getting everything hauled up. He's, right. get, he's getting stuff. Clark <laughs> yeah. gets stuff done. <laughs> right, right. And right. his his journals are like, move six miles today. Good camp, good water, right,
0: right, yeah. Men,
1: men behaving. <laughs> the end.
0: Yeah, right. right you know, right. It's, and, and <laughs> he's so
1: practical. He is the logistical, yeah, practical side of this expedition, and you know he's he is. He's the head. Lewis is the heart.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to put it.
1: Yeah. I don't don't want to make it sound like I'm disparaging either one of them. It takes both of those to make this work. Absolutely. And to make it succeed. Absolutely.
0: So they reach the Pacific Ocean, and now, thankfully, they have a much easier trip back. But, I mean, there are going to be hardships, because keep in mind that they are very low on trade goods now. I mean, it's hard to guess how many you're going to need in the first place. You just you can't estimate that easily. So they are in some more desperate situations. They're meeting tribes that have way higher prices for their trade goods because they're used to the French and Spanish traders who would come on the coast. And then, you know, that was just the deal they had right. the expectations that they had and they're like well we're going to charge you your white guys they're white guys we're going right. to charge you the same thing this <laughs> we is the white guy price you
1: know if you came from that direction that's your problem
0: <laughs> yeah exactly exactly <laughs> um so the journey home's way easier because now they are going in the direction of the river right, right? Now, and,
1: and you know they've, <laughs> they've, they've noticed this then and now the water is flowing East, west to east yeah. the direction they need to go yeah still got to get over those uh, Rocky Mountains right right uh, but they get over the Rocky Mountains they they're able to go on the Columbia River and uh, you know and and then they eventually uh, let me skip a little ahead a little yeah. bit they go back to what is Fort Mandan the Hadassah hmm. and they you know they, they hang out there for a little bit but but getting there it's important to remember They've been gone for two years. Yeah. It takes them two years, basically, <laughs> to get from St. Louis to the Pacific. Yeah, it takes them about five to six months yeah. to get from that point back to St. Louis, mm-hmm. just to give you an idea of how much easier it was to yeah. go from west to yeah. east. But you have to remember, this is the time when, as you said, they're having to use a lot of moccasins, which means mm. they're out of shoes. Yeah. They're probably out of wool clothes. They're probably out of all their regular Eastern white person food. Mm-hmm. They are out of a lot of stuff. Yeah. I am sure they look like <laughs> the most <laughs> ragged, yeah. primitive. They're wearing, you know, they're wearing skins. They're wearing skin moccasins. They are just hanging on. But but they've acclimated themselves to this lifestyle. They're used to the mo- moccasins and things.
0: That reminds me of one journal entry where Lewis or, or Clark uh, said that, you know, they had been in, in the sun so much that their, their skin was almost as brown as the natives or tan or whatever. And so they would have to show their arms to say, no, no, look, I'm a white guy. <laughs> <Like, you know? laughs> it's kind of funny in a way. <laughs> so yeah, oh man, they are, they are ready to be home. Yeah. I cannot possibly imagine what that feeling was like to finally, like... Get to a point where you're you're seeing people that look like you, uh, recognizable areas of like we're we're almost to St. Louis, and right. then when they get to St. Louis, it's it's remarkable because the people who get to greet them, and of course it's a big celebration because it's right. like what we definitely thought y'all were dead, right. and you know they're being updated with all the news of the time <laughs> that they've missed, yeah. and they're they're meeting all these people. Of course they're chatting it up. They're they're finally drinking, you know. <laughs> some, right. <laughs> Some whiskey and all that and uh and I just I cannot imagine the relief. Especially um I'm I'm kinda curious, especially because Meriwether Lewis, you know, in his later journals, as he's really reflecting on the enormity of this trip, he's he did, like he said earlier, he did seem to put a lot of pressure on himself and almost intuitively know that this was his greatest contribution in this life. And and, you know, we'll sort of do the um the epilogue of their lives uh, a little bit later, but when they get to St. Louis, I mean, what? From there, they
1: still have to get all the way back to Virginia. Right, but the, but they're but they're you know in in 1806 terms they're already there. Yeah, right? right, right. So, but this and you know getting to St. Louis is one thing, but I've always imagined so they so they so they get to the uh, old Fort Mandan site. From there on, it's just the Missouri River to St. Yeah. Louis. Now it's a long way, but every day. Is quote easy? Yeah, because they're yeah. in canoes, they're going with the current of one of the biggest rivers in mm. North America. I think they're making something like seventy or eighty miles a day. Yeah, and they're just—it's just a pleasure cruise. That point, yeah, right? it's like we are we are we are home free. Even
0: Charbonneau can do this. Yeah, yeah. It's like we are
1: home free, man. We are just yeah. every day just brings them closer, oh. and it's a beautiful—you know—it's beautiful, you know, it's beautiful yes. weather. They're they're mm-hmm. they're on a leisurely stroll or float down yeah. the Missouri River, and so when they get there. You know, that's. I'm sure it's this, you know, what What do we do? And, you know, one of the first things Lewis does is, as a good expedition leader is he sits down and he writes a letter to Jefferson, you know, that says, we are alive. <laughs> we made it. So many things to tell you. <laughs> let's, you get, know. let's get lunch. Yeah. <laughs> um, when did they get, they get back in September? I believe it's September of 06.
0: Of yeah, let's see. So uh, this is, yep, you're, you're correct. They're, this is September 23rd. The Corps of Discovery arrives in St. Louis about noon.
1: <laughs> yes, uh, <around> noon. <laughs> Just in time for lunch. Just in time for lunch. <laughs> uh, so, you know, they get there, and, you know, there's still work to do, but they're alive, they've made it, <laughs> and they've got to get the men back together. They basically have to re-equip. And they're not setting out for the East immediately. Mm. I think Lewis heads out first, and Clark sort of stays, again, Clark stays behind right. to kind of handle the logistics, mm-hmm. mustering out the men, getting them back where they, w- they want and need to go. So Lewis gets back and meets with Jefferson sometime in December. Uh, yes. yep. Clark doesn't get back to D.C. until Jan- just after the first of the year.
0: Yes, that's correct. Um, yeah. mm-hmm.
1: So, so they separate out, you know. They separate out, and and you know, Clark is bringing all the stuff with him. Yeah. And apparently, you know, there's there's this great description. They've brought all these artifacts in to show Jefferson all these Native American artifacts and these skins of exotic animals and the big map that Lewis the Clark mostly had drawn of their expedition, and they and someone walks in to to the foyer at Monticello and there's Lewis and Jefferson on their hands and knees. (laughs) <laughs> like looking at the maps I that have been that. drawn and like showing this and showing yeah, that. They're just and so just excited. This, like, just so yes.
0: Excited. Oh wow. Um, so must yeah, have, must have been nice to be. Well, I mean, you know, there's a lot of pressures being president, but at least he didn't have to go over like basically sharp glass terrain of I, you <laughs>
1: the know. That, and all I, that stuff. I, I love Jefferson to death for <laughs> all of his complexities and compartmentalization, <laughs> but he never went further west than I'm trying to remember. It may have been I can't remember, but it wasn't very far west. Mm-hmm. He had the spirit to know that the america's future lay in the west and he loved the idea of adventure but it was not for him yeah <laughs> it, was, it was for his appointees yes, uh, yes to do those things and one of the things his expectations for his appointee lewis was the huge pressure because according to the rules of the enlightenment and discovery they've only done half the job mm-hmm. they're not done yeah well clark is done right. lewis's job is to take all of his notes All of those journals, all of these artifacts, and create a multi-volume narrative and report of the Corps of Discovery's expedition to the Pacific. Yeah, and that's all on Lewis, and it's perhaps one of the most harsh mentors that have ever existed. Here's Jefferson Uh saying, "You got to do this. You got to do this. You get okay. When are you going to get to work? This map is great." You starting tomorrow
0: yeah yeah so this becomes a i mean this is a really big challenge for lewis and we can't know exactly why but it's fair to assume that he did deal with some kind of mental health problems that were just of course not understood at the time i mean you mentioned that sort of like waves of melancholy or bursts of work and him reflecting on these things in a very personal way and you know, after this uh, this incredible experience, he goes to basically an administrative kind of role, which I'm sure is, just, I mean, that is the opposite. So yeah, he has this more like administrative role when he's appointed uh, governor of Upper Louisiana, which sounds very fancy, but, you know, it's just, it's not what just, it's not as significant, I guess, as what just yes. happened to him. How you know? could it
1: be? And you know, this is—I um, can't remember the the person, but he was talking about uh, you know other explorers, and you know, this is the equivalent of going to the moon. I mean, here yeah. we are. You <laughs> know, people aren't excited enough about the potential <laughs> of us going back to the moon yeah. on Artemis, but it's the same thing. Yeah. And you know, he he this this historian reflects. Well, how far out can you go and still come back? Yeah. yeah. And can you imagine having had this? As you said, it was the it was the greatest. He knew it was the greatest experience and the purpose of his life, mm-hmm. and he's done it. And he was out there; he was living deep. And now it's over. Welcome back to your desk, Mister Lewis. Yeah. Here's the rest of your life.
0: And how could you possibly really put into words <laughs> what you experience? You? you know, there's got to be so much pressure. And, and so he does, he struggles for years to write this, I mean, to the point where it's basically handed to someone else, in a sense, to collect all the information and write the narrative version of it. Because, of course, he wrote the journals, but to take all of that documentation and create the narrative for the public, um, he was actually not the one to do that. And. Sadly, that is because he he dies um, very
1: likely of suicide. I'm convinced it's suicide.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because even Clark, like, kind of hints at his uh, severe melancholia that, you know... Well, and,
1: and yeah, when there's a letter that, that Clark is writing right after he's heard of mm. this. And at the time, it was referred to, I think, as a suicide. And, yeah. and Clark basically says, I'm not surprised. Yeah.
0: And it's so sad. And, you know, like, a testament to how much... Their bond meant to Clark is that he names his as a first son Meriwether Lewis. I think. Clark? I think yeah. it is. It's his first or second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's his first son Meriwether Lewis. Um, which, yeah. Oh, it, it's so sad. Yet I feel like that's a big reason of why I'm so drawn to Lewis the the whole expedition in a way because this is something that I don't want people to not know about I don't want people to not realize how big of a deal it was and that. You know, his short life. I mean we're talking about like he only lived until their late thirties. Not even late, probably like mid thirties, you know. Yeah. I don't know. there's some some kind of reverence that I feel for that. Now Clark, on the other hand, seems to do pretty well after.
1: He, he I mean he he does. He is uh named uh, the uh, agent of Indian affairs. He finds the girl of his dream, settles down, marries, lives a happy home life, has right. kids. Yeah, raises John <laughs> Baptiste. Yeah, has and you know, he he has he has a quote, unquote, perfect life. Yeah. And, again, you know, level-headed, lives to a a ripe old age. But it's just, again, you know, things affect people different ways uh, because of of who they are and Mm -hmm. and what they experience.
0: Yeah. Now, Clark did attempt to get folks from the expedition back together, sort of like as a reunion type of thing that did not succeed. (laughs) And we just don't really know what happened to Sakagawea. it is most likely that she died around the age of only 25 of, a, of some illness um, and there's a I mean I don't even feel like really mentioning it there's a myth that she goes back to her Shoshone village and she lives until the 99 yeah, or something no. you know sort of a very romantic version of it but more than likely um, it, the only like documentation that really references someone who is very like in that same area, and it, it was likely her. So she probably dies at, unfortunately, a, a young age. And then the rest of the men, it's hard to say because, you know, they were not the famous guys. They're you just know? promising
1: corporals and sergeants. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, we mentioned that, you know, York eventually gets his freedom. We, we have no idea what, you know, Where what happens goes. after that. Yeah. So it's, I think that's in a way that just the fact that there's so much primary source documentation with this really, really fascinating. Uh, expedition like that makes it even more special that it was intentionally documented in such specificity and then you you kind of get the the compare and contrast of like okay well what do you what can you know when things aren't intentionally documented or or sacred in the moment or whatever so it makes me feel even more, uh, appreciative that we have <laughs> these journals. Right. So there is, there's still so much, we are, we're at a, like an hour 30 in our, in our raw recording and, uh. There's still so much we like. We didn't even talk about the grizzly bear attack. Not the grizzly bear. We d- didn't even talk about the wolves. We didn't <laughs> talk about
1: the blue mass pills.
0: <laughs> we didn't talk about the blue mass pills. We didn't talk about. Okay, one really. Okay, well, this. Is, now we'll just get into the very random things that were just surprising. One really surprising thing. Um, an example of the details that you'll get from reading or listening to the journals. I was amazed that okay, they find a pelican. I don't know where. Probably near the coast. Obviously, they find a pelican. And we're like you know what, a pelican can hold a lot of things in that gullet, whatever it's called. And so they kill the pelican and they make, like, a storage bag out of the pelicans. I don't even know what you call that thing, but where it keeps all the fish. I'm like, that's just that's ingenuity that is creativity (laughs) sorry pelican but i mean dang you know so it's all these these fascinating details that like we just cannot cover or even remember you know within hours i'm sure uh so i highly encourage y'all to check out the lewis and clark journals Uh, the book he mentioned what was the title Oh,
1: undaunted courage undaunted that's
0: my next book then
1: but there are a as you can imagine, a plethora of books. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've tried to get some. There, there are books just on the medical aspects mm. of the uh, journey. There are some. There, I've got one book that tries to recreate some of the music that they would have oh. played, would have heard from the native tribes cool. on the journey. Plant life on yeah. the native journey. Uh, <laughs> the psychology of Lewis and Clark. Yeah. You know, <laughs> things like that. There is a. Uh, there is one monograph that tries to reconstruct everything that it can about York. Mm. But, you know, it's, and it, it is, as you can imagine, yeah. it is just taking bits and pieces mm-hmm. from the journals and the even tinier, mm-hmm. less extant bits and pieces from either side of the expedition trying to recreate the, the person of York. Wow. So there, there's a huge body of literature on this. And a, and a bunch of online stuff, too. As you said, you you want to go see where where Clark carved his initials there yes. on, Poppy, on Poppy Tower. And I'm um, sure there's
0: some great interpretive centers. I have not there, looked well, yet, but... The,
1: there there and they're all along you know there's one at Fort Mandan Oh yeah yeah um, yeah
0: there's like a reconstruction a recon- right They've
1: got all the forts reconstructed what? They've got Clatsop reconstructed oh, that's they've got so Mandan cool. reconstructed Oh my god um,
0: I'm going to go on an uh, the adventure there the, that's there so are, cool There are there are
1: expeditions you can take with tour groups that will put you in canoes and float you down <gasps> the Missouri River Oh
0: my goodness the dream just got bigger all right <laughs> <laughs> I'll have <to> definitely document <laughs> I'll have my own little
1: journal there Yes you know. <laughs> just don't tip it over Yeah <laughs> yeah <it> <laughs> No Saka <laughs> Joya to save you. No,
0: no. Oh man. Well, this has been so much fun to blab about and, and nerd out about. Uh, again, that's uh, only scratching the surface. So I hope y'all will learn more. It's just fascinating. I, I This is not the last of my uh, research with Lewis and Clark. It, I honestly feel like you know, uh, as I've come to meet academics and historians and you know professors and everything that find like that really niche (laughs) topic I right now this is my fixation like I I'm just so fascinated by it and it's something that I feel like it's just a heroic journey it's got interesting characters it's got all this action it's got so many interesting challenges Uh, I really really hope that there will be an awesome movie
1: (laughs) miniseries miniseries yeah 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 yeah. that's what we
0: need is a miniseries um so anyone out there want to throw us a few million dollars to uh make the miniseries just let us know anything else to say on lewis and
1: clark i think it is the classic american adventure yep i mean it's just the only thing that comes close to rivaling it is the apollo missions right right yeah and i mean and i think i think those are the those are the two, and as yeah. big a deal as the Apollo missions were in the '60s, this was without a lot of media coverage. Yeah, right? Right? Apollo <laughs> had a ton of media coverage. This did not, no. but it's the, it's the same thing. Yeah, it is the same. It's the practical. It's the stories of the individuals, and it's a group of people working together to accomplish the most amazing. Thing, which is to discover the unknown mm. and to meet new, to seek out new life and new civilizations to boldly go where no man has gone before.
0: Well, this has been so much fun. And hey, if you are a teacher out there, especially a teacher in Georgia, uh, your students uh, can meet Lewis and Clark through the magic of our Cottrell Digital Studio. Um, don't know if you know, but we have a, a, a top secret time laboratory here. And <laughs> so I do hope that any teachers out there, um, this is great for really all ages, but our bread and butter is really like second to fifth grade is typically um, what we cater to. But yeah, so check out our website for our digital programs and you can meet Lewis and Clark as they have arrived. A uh, Back um, near the, what would it be? The Yellowstone
1: River No, the, or the, where they've arrived at St. Louis. At St. Louis, that's yeah. right.
0: At St. Louis, that's right, that's right. So I, I could go on and on and on, but this right. has been enough nerding out. Thanks so much for joining us today, and we will be back next week with uh, another fascinating interview. Um, I, don't know, I don't know who it's going to be, but it's going to be great. It's going to so, be good. Yep. Yeah. All right, see y'all next week. Bye. Bye. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. We greatly appreciate your reviews on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to Then Again. You can follow the Northeast Georgia History Center on Facebook and Instagram, and check out our YouTube channel with hundreds of great programs. Thanks, y'all, and see you next week for another episode of Then Again.